It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In today's episode, I'm going to tell you there's a trend going on that's your friend in investing that I love steadily lower costs than later. I'm going to talk about rising costs at a place I know so many of you are so passionate about, Disney. In fact, anytime I ever talk about Disney, people freak out. So I've talked about uh, the ticket prices at Disney, but there's a new way that your day at Disney can become a better experience, but for, you guessed it, more money. I'll fill you in. So there's an absolute price war that continues in the investing world. And so much of the recent price war has gone on because of Fidelity Investments. Fidelity, which had long been of the discounters, the highest cost to invest with, decided they weren't going to be out vanguarded by Vanguard anymore. Vanguard, I'm sure, in any testing they did, was the one that people always said, well, well, I have my money at Vanguard because... You know, their fees are so good. So Fidelity came up with a lightning bolt a couple of years ago, and it's the Fidelity Zero funds that have no, obviously no commissions, and they also have no built-in expenses. Fidelity absorbs them in the Zero funds. So a dollar in, 100% of that dollar works for you, And 100% of that dollar comes back to you based on how your investment hopefully grows over the years. So Vanguard is run like a co-op, kind of like a credit union for investing. And as their costs go down, the cost to you goes down. But they they can't do anything free like Fidelity, which is owned by a very wealthy family in New England, because Vanguard is there to serve the people who have accounts, just like a credit union. But as Vanguard lowers costs, they have to pass them on to you as part of how their operation runs. And so the target retirement funds, which if you've listened to me for any period of time, you'd think I should marry target retirement funds. I love them so much. Um Vanguard has lowered the costs of their retirement funds by another big chunk to the point that the target retirement funds, although they're not free investing, they're really, really getting close to the point. There are obviously no commission because they're from Vanguard. And then the ongoing management fees that they have are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point that the expenses you pay for their management of the target retirement funds are might as well be zero. They're so low. And Schwab as well has continued to lower the expenses that they have. So the beauty is that you've got a choice in the marketplace. You can go to places that investing is so low cost that you end up over the years the long haul, with much, much, much more money to spend for your life's goals, 
or in retirement. And the difference when you go to a high-cost place versus a low-cost place, you look way down the road and you essentially will end up with typically 50% more money putting in the same money every pay period or every month over a working lifetime. You'll end up usually with 50% more money being with one of these low-cost providers than being with a high-cost provider like a full commission stockbrokerage. And speaking of one of the full commission stockbrokerages, let me tell you something that Merrill Lynch is doing that to me is no favor to you at all. So you know how rich people uh, go into private equity? That that's like their thing? Well, now Merrill Lynch is lowering the minimums required to go into these so that they're available for everyday people to go into private equity and you can feel like you're a big shot that you're in private equity. Let me tell you something. Private equity is not the dream that people talk about it like it is because you have very high expenses and you have what's known as illiquidity or illiquid funds. So you put money into something that if you need the money later, you can't get to it until the private equity house decides you can get to your money. When you invest in regular stuff, you know, exchange traded funds, mutual funds, index funds, stocks, publicly traded stocks, if you decide right now you don't want those anymore, you can sell them right now. You know what you'll get paid back for them because you know the current value to the moment and your money is available to you typically in three days that apparently at some point it's going to become one day. You go into one of these private equity things like, look at this, we're making available to you this private equity investment opportunity. Opportunity, my foot. You go into this and then you are checked in, but you can't check out till they say you can check out and they tell you what you're going to get back and what it's going to cost you to get the money back. So if you are a Merrill Lynch customer and they're making that private equity pitch to you, don't fall for it. Krista? This is from Yvette in California. My fiancé, who is 63, was just told by his financial advisor that the advisor is retiring soon. He has over $3 The million- nerve of that person. How could they <laughs> do that? He has over $3 million in his account. He needs to interview someone to take over his portfolio. What questions should he ask to decide who should be responsible for his life savings? So, Yvette, with $3 million on hand, I'm thrilled that he's got this kind of money. I don't want him at a full commission stock brokerage. Right now he's got the money at one of those ultra-expensive full commission stockbrokers that almost certainly is not acting legally as what's known as a fiduciary, meaning that they are required by law to do what's in your fiance's best interest. So what I would say to you is I would want your fiance to use this as an opportunity to interview fiduciaries, fee-only financial planners, that can help your fiance at 63, it's great, 
to do full life planning, estate planning, all those things, and going to a fee-only fiduciary is going to make it happen. So there are a couple of ways to get to someone like that. I've talked about uh, NAPFA, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. There's also Garrett Planning Network. There are explanations of both of these on Clark.com, how to hire a fiduciary. There are good fiduciaries that aren't members of either of those organizations, but you need somebody who legally enters into a contract with you to serve you as a fiduciary. With $3 million on hand, there's risk with someone who does not have your fiance's best interests at heart and would eat into that money by putting them in unsuitable things, uh, the private equity kind of stuff I was talking about earlier, or ultra-high commission products, insurance kind of things with high commissions, et cetera, et cetera. So the stakes are high. I want your fiancé with somebody who you know is not only saying they are, but is legally required to do what's in his best interest. This is from Matthew in Michigan. My 17-year-old daughter has her first job. She's a great kid and student. I would like to open a Roth IRA for her. Do I open it for her and put myself as the owner and then transfer ownership later? What is the best way to do this? I'm looking at using Fidelity. And by the way, she's looking at going to Central Michigan University next year. Well, I am a Chippewa. Your daughter would be a fellow Chippewa. If she goes, I got my master's in business from Central Michigan forever ago, Matthew, in 1977. So long, long, long time ago, long ago, far away. And if she does go to CMU, I hope she loves the experience. Um, as for opening a Roth, the way it works is it's what's known as a custodial Roth. Until her 18th birthday, you are her custodian and at 18, it becomes legally her Roth. And any of the financial houses, and certainly Fidelity, is very familiar with doing a custodial Roth. And your daughter, working at her first job, putting money in now at age 17, you can put in up to, you can even do the what I call the daddy match. I, For my three kids, when they are at work, I offered them as kids the opportunity, and my kids all had to go to work at age 15. That was just my rule. Um, they, Every dollar they saved, I would match with a dollar to incentivize them to save that money for retirement. And so all three kids have ended up with nice Roth IRAs from a young age that grows so much over the years tax-free and will be a nice cushion for them in retirement. So using Fidelity is great. The custodial account would be the perfect way to do it. And this is from Tim in Florida. My wife and I have recently become victims of SIM swapping, in oh, which man. case, yeah, the thief somehow gets control of your cell phone through the SIM card. They then proceeded to attempt to gain access to our bank account through online banking. They tried to wire money out of our account, but thankfully the bank stopped them. While this was happening, my wife's cell phone stopped working. We quickly froze all of her credit. 
and now received a letter stating that someone was trying to open a credit card in her name but was blocked because of the account because the accounts are frozen. We use T-Mobile as our cell phone carrier and they recently had a data breach. Could this be how the thieves performed the SIM swap? Can you tell me more about the SIM swap? What else can we do to protect ourselves going forward? Okay, I'm, I'm so glad that it sounds like, Tim, you and your wife dodged the really bad bullets that can happen with SIM swapping. So here's the deal. We've had, it could be the T-Mobile breach, which was really bad, any of a number of breaches. We all get to the point where we're numb to all the data breach letters we get. And those are just the ones we get letters about. There are other data breaches that occur where criminals end up with our social security number and other identifying information. Um, they would know easily from any of the data breaches that you were T-Mobile customers, whether it was the T-Mobile breach or another one. And they are able to put together a puzzle of the key pieces of your life, where you bank, um, where you shop, um, whose cell phone you have, and all that. So you know how all the financial institutions are using two-factor authentication, where they send you a text to your phone verifying that you're the one attempting to access the account or change the password on an account or something like that. So they already got this information on you, Tim, and maybe in your case, um, your wife too, both of you. And so what they do is, in your case, they contact T-Mobile with key information, convince them that they are talking to you or your wife, and that you are moving your cell phone service to another provider. And they end up gaining control of your phone number, which means since they also know from data breaches where you bank and other things, they're able to attempt to steal money out of your account because they now control the two-factor authentication to your account, not you. Anytime your cell phone goes dead, it's a key warning that you almost certainly are a victim of SIM swapping, SIM theft, for the purpose of stealing money out of your life. Having credit freezes in place will prevent them from applying for new credit as if they're you, but it will not prevent them from being able to attack the funds you already have in banks, brokerages, or credit unions. Obviously, our systems for security with passwords, two-factor authentication, and the rest are not up to the task, and we're going to have to come up with better ways for us to be verified to stop these crimes. You've done what you were supposed to do, and I'm really glad that you avoided the real harm the criminals were attempting to cause. I want to tell you something. If you hate waiting in lines, going to an amusement park, tough place to go. But what if you were willing to pay more to avoid the lines? I'm going to talk about that straight ahead. It's kind of shocking how expensive it is to go to an amusement park. And I love what Walt Disney has done, how they've gone to the variable pricing. I know a lot of people don't like it, but dynamic demand pricing is actually a benefit to both the business and the consumer because they use price as a signal to regulate the size of the crowds. And the more crowded 
apart may seem it's going to become, the price goes higher, and people say, you know what, I'm not going that day. And so Disney now, minimums typically 110 and can cost like 160 just for a basic admission. And Disney used to have the fast pass thing. Well, Universal figured out, hey, you know what? That's really worth money. And so Universal started charging people big money, virtually the cost of the admission ticket, in addition to be able to jump the lines. And instead of spending your day in a forever line, you don't have to. And Disney's like, yeah, you know what? They're right. There's money to be made in this. So Disney has its new thing where it works on a freemium business model. They have a new app that um, is really, really smart, uses artificial intelligence and will get smarter over time that you download the app called the Genie and you put in the Genie what things you really want to go do, what rides, what attractions, whatever, inside the park. And then it develops a schedule for you based on what it knows is historical demand through a day for a particular part of the park and where you're going to find the greatest efficiency that you go here first and here second, here third, and they might not even be close to each other, but in terms of your overall time, your day will be much more efficient using the genie to plan the day. But then the genie comes with a bonus. You can use the genie for free. And by the way, if let's say you're in the park a couple hours and it realizes, oops, our algorithms were wrong, it will then reconfigure the rest of your day, again, for free. But let's say you want to step out of those long lines, then it's going to cost you. So just like Universal, you will pay extra for the line skipping. And so it will allow you to move to the express line, essentially, four different attractions, and depending on what they are, you might have to pay a separate fee for something that's in ultra-high demand and all the rest. I, I know this is very elitist, what Disney's doing and what Universal's been doing, but it is classic economics. It's like these roads that are being built around the country that have the toll lanes next to the regular lanes. And you decide, okay, wait, that toll lane's $8 right now to my exit. Do I want to pay the $8 or do I want to spend an extra 25 minutes waiting in traffic? So it's your choice in that situation. And that's exactly what Disney and Universal have done. And I think it's the market at work. By the way, if you've ever heard me on the freeway thing, um, people have hated what I've said about the freeways over the years. But the answer is, instead of paying the huge costs involved in building a separate parallel lane or two lanes next to the free lanes, it would cost a whole lot less money for everybody if all lanes on urban freeways 
were told and that you would know online or on an app what the cost was to get on that road at that time because you'd be shocked how much of driving is discretionary. And so if you use price as a signal for what we now call a freeway and made every lane of an interstate in an urban area toll, people would change what they do by the price signals and traffic would actually flow a whole lot better. I'm sorry, this is why economics is the dismal science because I'm telling you, it would work. Krista? Okay, this definitely isn't as fun as going to Disney, but Brandy in Alaska has this question for you. Two employees misused the office credit card. They used it for personal purchases and hid the charges among office expenses. I tried to file a fraud claim, and the bank said that it was not fraud if they were authorized to use the credit card. As it turns out, the claim should have gone directly to Visa. Visa would have investigated and reimbursed the money. Uh, the bank said they will not investigate my claim any further because it's been beyond the 90-day window. I tried to file the claim long before, but they kept telling me it was not valid. I'm hoping you can help. It's roughly $20,000 in fraudulent charges. I filed a police report and spoken with several attorneys. All of them tell me it's not worth their time, but it's worth my time. $20,000 is a lot of money. There are certain times that Krista, you will read a question like this one from Brandy that I shallow breathe because I know. you work so hard, Brandy, running your own business and you need that money to operate your business. And these crooked employees stole from you. So I don't know who told you that Visa would have helped you when your bank wouldn't have, but that's not true. The deal is when you get a corporate credit card and you make an employee an authorized user, even if they commit fraud on that card, they, as your employee, buy things they weren't supposed to, unfortunately, you are stuck with that cost. Just as if an employee reached in a cash drawer out of a register and stole cash, you're stuck with that. That's why as a business, you, there's an insurance product you can buy that protects you against financial fraud of employees. And if you have in, um, business insurance, you should talk with your agent or broker about having insurance that protects you from internal theft. I know a business owner who had a much larger embezzlement than the 20, it was roughly 150,000. And they were able to recover about two thirds of it after their deductible from their insurance policy they have on their business. The reason you don't have a claim with the bank or in your case with Visa is the employees were authorized to use those cards. If an employee's card had been stolen and a crook was using the card, then you would have dispute rights. But in a case where it's an employee who you authorized who made purchases with cards that you didn't authorize or two employees with a card, you sadly are the one who gets stuck with the loss and your only claim is against those individuals. 
you have the right without a lawyer to sue them up to the small claims court limit in the state of Alaska. And you could go after them. And if you get a judgment against each of these employees, if they stay in the state and get a job somewhere else, if you successfully get a judgment, you were able to garnish their wages or any bank account that you're able to find out they have. So you said it's worth your time. The police are not pursuing them for embezzlement. Uh, the cost of a lawyer, too high. But at least go after these two people for what you can get a small claims court judgment against them. If either of these people have left the state of Alaska, this is just school of hard knocks. And the limit's $10,000. Thank you, Krista. So if each of them stole uh, somewhere around $10,000, you're able, 10 and 10, you're able to go after them for the full 20. And this question's from Karen and Juan in Washington, D.C. We recently had our first child, congratulations, and are shopping for life insurance. I know you typically recommend level term life to, and to purchase coverage for 10 times your annual income. However, as you also recommend, we live on a good bit less than we make. So does your 10 times your income rule still apply? We are 36 and 32 and both work full time, earning roughly the same income. Also, do you recommend 20, 25, or 30 years for our term? And what happens if one of our incomes changes significantly so we adjust the policy? So you'd actually have two policies. And again, congratulations on the birth of your child. Um, you each have one ensuring uh, first the life of the other, and then second, uh, potentially with uh, some kind of trust arrangement, the financial needs of your child. And so you want each to have your own policy because of your ages and your typical working life cycle, you would do 30 years. So we would cover this child, if you have subsequent children, because you said first ch child, you'll cover their growing up and you'll cover the remaining cycle of your working lifetime. The 10 times your income is kind of a uh, rough, crazy number. The reason you do it is over those 30 years, you're going to have inflation and erode the value of that benefit. And even though you live on less than what you make, you're setting up your financial profile based on what you do make, and then you're saving a portion of it. So the amount you want to insure is 10 times that income. So I hope that helps, and I'm so glad that you are looking at buying level term insurance right after the birth of your child, which is when most people do consider buying life insurance. And this question is from Clarence in Oklahoma. What is the best rental car insurance credit card? I got a Fidelity Visa Rewards card upon your recommendation for that, and later I saw where you said the card dropped that coverage. Thank you for your valuable advice. Clarence, I don't know why, but the rental car coverage is the most volatile of pretty much every benefit that credit cards offer. I don't know if somebody gets fed up at a, at a credit card issuer with how many claims they've had for it. Well, we offered this. We never thought anybody was going to use it. I don't know what happens, but it'll be there one day and gone the next. We have what we hope is an up-to-date list of credit cards that offer car rental insurance coverage at Clark.com, 
and look through that list and see what works best for you. When you look through the list, know this. The big significant thing is primary or secondary. A very, very small number of credit cards offer what's known as primary, meaning that you don't even involve your own auto insurance on a damage claim involving a rental car. It's only the credit card that gets involved. So you don't affect your auto insurance rates. You don't have an at-fault claim. Um, secondary is where after your own auto insurance settles with the car rental company, the credit card sits on top of that to deal with the financial exposure you might have. If you rent a car extremely often, which I would say is 10 or more times a year, you want to get one of the cards that has primary coverage. If it's less than 10 times a year, uh, we fortunately don't have accidents very frequently. Go with one of the cards that you can get potentially no annual fee that includes the secondary coverage. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. Please visit Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com for more money-saving advice you can trust. And don't forget to sign up for our free daily newsletters while you're there.